the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today as we continue our study in the book of 2 Samuel, David tries to be friendly to the new king of Ammon, but old suspicions are hard to overcome. We'll pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 10 verse 1. The title of the message is, Do Your Best, Commit the Rest. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 10, 2 Samuel chapter 10. The whole theme of the books of Samuel, remember it's one book originally, was that uh, looking at the heart, lessons from the heart. And when we get to 2 Samuel, though, we're focusing mostly on David's heart, and in particular, his heart after God. And we're learning all these things about David that made him a man after God's heart. We will learn other things that obviously will be shortcomings, and yet even through those things, we will still learn what made David a man after God's heart. At this point in time, when we get to chapter 10, David has expanded Israel's borders farther than they've ever been. Multiple nations are now vassal states to Israel. Israel's at peace with all of its neighbors for the first time in its history since Joshua brought them into the land. But As you can imagine, all of the surrounding nations aren't exactly happy about this status quo. And so when a coordinated rebellion occurs, David sends Joab to deal with it. And this uh, rough and tough general that we, we don't usually tend to think of as the spiritual guy finds himself surrounded. And this normally not so spiritual man gives a wonderful speech to his troops that reveals an important truth that we can all live by, and it's that we're to do our best and then commit the rest to the Lord. So chapter 10, we begin in verse 1. And it came to pass after this that the king of the children of Ammon died, and Hanun his son reigned in his stead. And then said David, I will show kindness unto Hanun the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness unto me. And David sent to comfort him by the hand of his servants for his father, and David's servants came into the land of the children of Ammon. So here we see David in this moment in time sends some of his officials to the nation of Ammon for this situation that comes up. It says it came to pass after this, the things that have occurred in the previous chapters, that the king of Ammon died. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 12, it doesn't tell us how, but Ammon, it tells us that Ammon had become a vassal country, a vassal state of Israel. So they were paying tribute. They had pledged fealty, loyalty to David. And so the king of Ammon dies, Hanun his son is reigning in his place. And 
David's reaction to this event is, I'm going to show kindness unto Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness unto me. That word kindness is that word hesed, loyal love, unfailing devotion. I mean, this is a, it's like the Hebrew equivalent of the New Testament agape. Nahash, we know this guy before in scripture. He was the king of Ammon who invaded Israel right after Saul became king. When Saul became king, people in Israel didn't rally behind him. A lot of people didn't like the pick the Lord picked. And really, we had even a bunch of people who refused to follow King Saul. But there were some loyal men who said, no, we're going to be behind you, Saul. And and so the nation was still kind of fractured. Well, the king of Ammon took opportunity, this guy Nahash, and he invaded the nation of Israel. And so Saul rallied the troops, Israel behind him, and he, he routed the Ammonites, and that's when all the kingdom finally got behind Saul. We don't have a record of anywhere of how this guy treated David well. He says, I will show kindness as his father showed kindness to me. We don't have any record of how he showed kindness to David. In fact, he's technically, the only record we have is he's the enemy of Israel. So what happened? I I don't know. It's probably not a stretch to assume that Nahash probably helped David somehow when he was on the run from Saul. Kind of like the idea, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, Probably it had something to do with that, but it could also be just as simple as the fact that when David became king, that Nahash sent an emissary to congratulate him. I don't know. It could have been something very simple, and David either way sees this as a kindness, and he wants to reciprocate this goodwill. And so he sent to comfort him, to express sympathy to the son who's now going to be king by the hand of his servants for his father. So he sends these royal officials. These are uh, important emissaries from Israel, a great honor that David would send these important men to express their sympathy at this guy's loss of his father. However, in verse 3, we're going to see that some of the leadership in Ammon does not see it that way. Verse 3, And the princes of the children of Ammon said unto Hanun their lord, Do you think that David does honor your father, that he has sent comforters unto you? Has not David rather sent his servants unto you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? That's that's not exactly believing the best about somebody here. These princes, we don't know how the nation of the Ammonites structured their leadership. It it means they're either high-ranking nobles or chieftains, some kind of leaders. I think probably the closest you would equivalent you could find in our nation is this would be like the president's cabinet. These are high-ranking officials, not the king, but they are powerful individuals. And they've likely been in power much longer than this guy has been. And so uh, when the phrase, do you think that David does honor your father? It means, does David, literally in Hebrew, it means, does David's claim have weight in your eyes? They, you know, he's coming here claiming to express sympathy, and, and you're actually believing him? Uh, they're almost chiding him for his naivete. Uh, he says here, has not David rather sent his servants unto thee to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? The word there for search actually implies that the king gave them freedom to go about wherever they wanted to in the city. And so the idea is, don't you realize they're here to, to, to gather information about the defenses of the city and to spy out the situation so that David can invade now that your father, who was a strong leader, is dead and then just wipe us all out? <laughs> the tone of this is, is a rebuke. You're, this is really naive of you. And so this, I, we don't know how old this, this guy is. He could be 50. He could be 20. I don't know how old he is. But this rebuke provokes an extreme response from this new king. Look at verse 4. Wherefore, 
Hanun took David's servants, and he shaved off the one half of their beards, and he cut off their garments in the middle, even to their buttocks, and sent them away. That's fighting actions. He took them, which means he took away their freedom. The word means to arrest. So he he took away the, the freedom they had to move about the city, put them in some type of ward where they couldn't move about, and then he... I, I don't imagine they agreed to this, this prospect, uh, this plan. They, they forcibly shaved just, just one side of their face. So, you know, you've got your beard over here, and then you've got a clean-shaven face over here. You kind of look like the guy who's got two faces. And so they did that to him. And in Oriental nations, a man's beard was considered his greatest ornament, okay? Like back then, they might wear jewelry, earrings, or things like that. But his beard... That was the greatest ornament he had. And I realize some of you still believe that today. However, it was also a sign of a man's freedom. Because it was the one way that you could express yourself however you wanted to. If you wanted to braid it, you wanted to do certain things, you wanted to grow it this way, that way, whatever. I mean, this was your freedom to do that. And so when someone else is shaving you, that's, by the way, the the great insult the Philistines did when Delilah cut Samson's hair. The idea was bondage, you know, that taking away the freedom. That was the idea behind this activity. Shaving one side of one's beard would be considered a massive insult. And yet this King Hanun doesn't stop there. He, he, it's comical we read it now, but I imagine if you'd had it happen to you and you, you're told to hit the road like that, you probably wouldn't have been very excited. Probably wouldn't have been chuckling either. He cut off their garments in the middle. The garments here is the long outer robe that reached down to the feet. So in the middle half would be right around here. And it tells us, just in case our imaginations didn't work very well, even to their butts. And so the idea here is that, and you have to understand something, Israel was a little bit different than than our culture. The only people who wore undergarments back then were the priests. That's it. I read something in Deuteronomy the other day, and I'm like, that's a weird law. There are a couple weird ones in Deuteronomy, but you have to understand they do life a little different than we do. And one of the laws was, if you see a guy walking up above you, you're not supposed to go look because you're going to uncover his nakedness because there were no boxers or briefs under there. So if you cut off a guy's robe, the outer garment right here, guess what? Hi, everybody. So they're naked from the, the waist down. Everything's exposed, and uh, a great dishonor. And then they sent them away, making them the mockery of anywhere they travel until they can get some clothes. And, and while they might have been able to secure new clothes soon, you can't just regrow a beard or put a new beard on. That takes time. And so wherever these guys are traveling for the next few weeks, however long it takes to grow the thing out and start to take care of it again, Everybody's going to know, what's going on with these guys? Somebody really had their way with them. It's like walking home and your pants are all ripped up and you got a bloody nose and a black eye because somebody just took you into the corner and pounded you for fun. That's kind of the idea here. There's a great humiliation. And when you consider that these are royal officials that were sent by the nation of Israel, that's a great dishonor. Even in our culture and the world today, we have the idea of diplomatic kindness. We treat them, you know, immunity and things like that. We give them great liberties because we treat them as guests of honor. So to do this to someone like this was a big no-no. And so the reaction, as you can imagine, is 
pretty heavy. When they told it unto David, in other words, uh, we're going to find a second, when they get to Jericho, they send someone to tell David what happened, because uh, that's where they are. When they, they told it unto David, he sent to meet them. He immediately, David, understanding how disgraced they would be at this mistreatment, he sends somebody to greet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, stay at Jericho until your beards be grown, and then you can come back. Again, they could get new clothes, but this whole look, they said, he said, stay there. I don't want, the idea is he didn't want them to suffer the indignity of everyone in the royal court, everyone in Israel seeing them like this. I mean, that would provoke a pretty heavy response from the nation. These guys had been faithful civil servants and they deserve better than to be thought of this way. Now, <laughs> as you read through this chapter, something tells me that those who criticized this new king, Hanun, they didn't expect him to react to such an extreme. Because what he does is virtually an act of war. They were vassals because they couldn't take Israel in a fight. That's why they sweared fealty to David. So that puts them in a very bad spot right now. And so in verse 6, we see the nation begin to scramble. And when the children of Ammon saw that they stank before David, the children of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth-Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 footmen, and of King Maacah, 1,000 men, and of Ishtob, 12,000 men. The phrase stank before is a phrase you'll see at times throughout the Old Testament, and it means to become a stench in someone's eyes. Now, I don't know about you, maybe you have really cool eyes, but mine don't smell. So obviously, when we're talking about a stench that reaches to your eyes, it's the idea, like, have you ever been somewhere where there's been a, like a waste leak or something like that, and like you, it's almost difficult to breathe, your eyes start to water. That's the type of situation here that this is describing. When you have a stench like that, you, you can't just ignore it. Either you remove yourself or you remove the cause of the stench. And so David opts for removing the cause of the stench, and he mobilizes for war. And so the Ammonites know they cannot take David on alone, and so they need allies if they're going to have a chance. And so it says that they sent and hired a total of 33,000 troops from these four other kingdoms that were north of Israel. First Chronicles chapter 19, verse 6 tells us that it cost them half a million pounds of silver. In modern money, that's over $100 million dollars. They broke the bank because they figured we're dead if we don't get help. Now, these four nations that supply troops for the Ammonites, they're also all vassals to David. So in essence, this kind of turns into a, like a kind of a domino effect of a pretty big rebellion against David. Interestingly enough, even Maacah joins in, and he's the father to one of David's wives. Absalom's mom is this guy's daughter. So, I mean, for him to go to war over something or to send troops to help somebody go to war against David, he's putting his daughter's life at risk. So, I mean, these guys have clearly been itching for a fight to come out from underneath David's rule. David learns that this is bigger than just Ammon. Well, he brings out the big guns, verse 7. And when David heard of it, it says he sent Joab and all the hosts of the mighty men. Joab... You know, David's a fierce warrior. The Bible talks about him. And in fact, we're going to keep reading of things he does, his accomplishments in battle, all throughout 2 Samuel. There will come a point in time when he almost dies fighting in a war, and that's when Joab tells him, you're getting too old for this, kid. But Joab, he's the fiercest warrior besides David that Israel has. 
And so David sends Joab, and then it mentions all the host, and technically there should be a comma there, the mighty men of Israel. So he sends the entire army, and the idea of the entire army here is not every man who can hold a weapon, but it's anyone who's a trained soldier. Now, this is in contrast, of course, to the specific mighty men that David had. Like when you first read this, you think, oh, he's bringing out all these guys that are going to be named later in 2 Samuel that are all the mighty men of David. And it talks about all their feats. So this guy slew a snow leopard, you know, whatever, and, you know, all these various things. That's not what this is saying here. The word mighty men, the way it's written here, it just refers to every trained soldier of Israel. This is, David's going all in with this. He's not holding back. And so verse 8, here's how it goes. It says, and the children of Ammon, they came out and they put the battle in array at the entering in of the gate. Put the battle in array means they arranged their battle lines for their soldiers, the Ammonites. They put them all in the entrance to the gate of their capital city of Rabbah. Now, the reason they do this is because they know what's going to happen if David captures the city. We already read about in chapter 8 that David, when Moab rebelled, what did he do? He executed two-thirds of their soldiers. So these guys are thinking, if, if, if we lose two-thirds of our male populations wiped out. And so they say, we're going to defend the city. We're going to bottleneck the, the armies of David here. But then I notice it says this, and the Syrians, all these mercenaries that they hired from Zobah and Rehob and Ishtab and Meachah, they were by themselves, so a separate army in the field. Uh, the word here actually refers to a location about four miles southwest of the city of Rabbah. So the plan here for the Ammonites is really simple. Draw in David's troops, bog them down in the narrow confines of the gatehouse of the city, and then smash them from behind with the, the hired mercenaries. Now, of course, what if Joab doesn't take the bait? Well, then if Joab doesn't take the bait, the Syrians press them from the rear, and then they smash them against the city. That's the idea here. We're going to hit Israel's forces from two sides, and either way, we're going to end up, you know, be like the hammer and the anvil is the very common phrase you hear when it, it refers to this type of battle tactic. So how does Joab respond? Verse 9. And when Joab saw that the front of the battle was against him before and behind the front, in other words, where he's going to be attacked, when he realizes he's going to be attacked from two sides, the front and the back, whatever he plan he chooses, where whoever decides to kid, he's going to have an enemy out at the front and the back. When he realizes this, as he chose of all the choice men, the best and most tested soldiers of Israel, and he set them in lines, battle lines, to go up against the Syrians. And then the rest of the people, all the other soldiers, it says that he delivered into the hand of Abishai, his brother, that he might put them, the battle lines, and the children of Ammon. So he decides to cut his army, and probably not exactly in half, because you probably have more of not the best soldiers than you do the best soldiers. But he cuts his army in two which obviously means you're going to now probably be outnumbered on both sides. And so, verse 11, he says to his men, to Abishai, if the Syrians be too strong for me, then you shall come help me. But if the children of Ammon be too strong for you, then I will come and help you. So, so this is the battle plan here. Rather than go on defense, Joab remains committed to being the army on the attack. And by splitting his army into two force, separate forces, Joab is ensuring that he's going to keep all his foes in front of him instead of leaving anybody at his rear. So the idea is we're both going to press forward, even though we are a smaller army separately, but that's how we're going to do it. Now, 
Some would say that's a bit arrogant, Joab. I mean, you're now going to be dividing your army up into two forces. You're going to be now not just one army that's outnumbered, but two armies that are outnumbered. And some would even say it's a bit arrogant because he makes no arrangement for the possibility of defeat. He basically says, if you're doing bad, I'll come help you. If we're doing bad, you come help me and we'll whoop him. But his next words that he says to his brother and, and probably to the rest of the troops, it reveals his mindset, why he, he makes this plan. Look at verse 12. He says, be of good courage and let us play the men for our people and for the cities of our God. The phrase, be of good courage, means men, you need to have the resolve to accomplish this task. This is the task that I've appointed to you. These are our battle lines that we're going to do. This is our plan. And you need to have the resolve to carry it out. In other words, you need to, what is it, put your courage to the sticking post is the phrase. You need to summon your courage and be resolved that we're going to fight and we're going to win. And then he says, let us play the men, which is actually a play on the same word for courage here or to be strong. It's a play on that word because it just means encourage yourself. Get your resolve together, get ready to go out and fight, and then encourage yourself for it. I love what David Guzik said. He said, courage and strength are not matters of feeling and circumstance. They are matters of choice. They are matters of choice. Some of the most courageous people I've ever known have been some of the people most terrified to do what they needed to do. I'm not saying anything new. I'm not making anything up. I'm not deep. Courage is not the absence of fear. Bravery is not the absence of fear. It's doing what's necessary, doing the right thing, going out to do what you need to do, even when you're afraid. That's courage. It's normal to feel afraid. I'm a little bit concerned about people who don't have any fear sometimes. (laughs) And he tells them, We are doing it not for plunder, not even for glory, but for our people. If we're going to win, we need to be committed to this plan because if we lose, there's a great cost. Because I guarantee you, if this is what they did to our royal officials, they're going to do worse to your your wife and your kids and, you know, everybody else back home. And not just for our people. I love what he says here too. He says, and for the cities of our God. Joab, again, he's not a spiritual guy, but you can see here he's got a solid foundation. He understands that the promised land and its cities belong to the Lord. He understands that. We're going to even see that in a little bit. He understands how how life is supposed to work, just doesn't always act on it. But he understands the principles. And you know, it brings up a good question for us. Do I recognize that all I have belongs to the Lord? Do I care for the things that God entrusts to me as if they're his? Or do I treat it like it's mine? We tell our kids all the time. People always come to me for parenting advice and I say, you know what, my advice, I'm way too strict. I don't mean that, but I mean, I'm just saying, you know, I, you see, if you think you're going to come for sympathy for me, if you're, you know, you're a parent and you, know, you say, well, we're trying to be nice to our kids, I'm not nice to any of my kids. If I see him jumping on a couch, that's bad. That's not your couch. That's the Lord's couch. If I see them mistreating something that they were given, I tell them, I say, that's not okay. That's, that's not yours. That's the Lord's. You don't get to treat that how you want. There are times you know, we had a, one of the kids one time threw a controller because he got mad. That didn't end well. That's not your controller to throw just because you get mad. That's the Lord's controller. And now it's my controller too. 
we have tried to teach our children from a very young age to respect the things that are in front of them because those are things that God gave to you. He doesn't owe you that. Do I recognize that all I have belongs to the Lord and do I care for it as if it's his? Now, before we move on to the rest of verse 12, what we see here is a great foundational truth in Scripture, and it's the concept of human responsibility. Notice what Joab did not say is, hey guys, battle belongs to the Lord, and just take five. Take five. There is always human responsibility. I want to tell you about a famous missionary named William Carey. William Carey was a young cobbler in England during the late 1700s. He started studying his Bible, and he became convinced that the heart of God was to reach the lost. However, his church taught that the Great Commission was only for the disciples. It didn't apply to us. It was just for the 12. Undaunted, Carey presented his thoughts from Scripture at a church meeting. The minister told Carey, and this is an exact quote, "'Sit down, young man. If God wants to save the heathen, he will do it himself.'" Carrie and his wife eventually sailed to India, and he took a job at an indigo factory and began passing out tracts and sharing his faith. William Carey eventually became one of the greatest missionaries in church history. At one point, when things were really hard, someone asked him and said, what keeps you going? If you know anything about him and you read his writings and what he accomplished, he gave all the glory to God. He trusted in God for the strength, all those things. But when he was asked, you know, how do you, how do you keep doing this? He said, I can plod, I can persevere in any definite pursuit. To this I owe everything. Carrie did what Joab told his men to do here. Be of a strong courage, play the part of a man, fulfill your responsibility. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours. Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.